the rain has begun here, so it's kind of nice because uh, I know the rain is not nice for everybody who's had to go through it with the hurricane. But we've been very dry here lately, and so we're finally getting some some rain come through. In fact, I saw an article this morning talking about how local farmers are actually really excited about the amount of rain that we're going to get uh, over oh, the next man. couple of days. It doesn't seem like it ever stops raining in upstate New York for some reason lately. I guess this is all. It'll come through us and then hit each of you <laughs> in succession. Um, I guess bef- before we get started, real quick though, um, that's all. That rain is from Hurricane Ida that came through uh, Louisiana, and we got a message from what was his name, David? Uh, is it David Copper? I'm sorry, I wasn't prepared. No, that's uh, okay. I didn't. I didn't ask you to be prepared. But anyway, we got a message from someone who evacuated, and he sent a really nice message talking about you know the the struggles of people who have to leave a situation like that when a hurricane's coming in and the devastation that it leaves behind. And he brought up uh, donating through the Red Cross. We thought that would be an awesome idea. So I'm going to put a link in the description of in the the show notes of this show. You can click and go immediately to the Red Cross to donate for Hurricane Ida relief. And we are going to take all the Patreon money that we get for this episode and donate it as well to lead the charge there. Uh, We've got to help out people who need help. So that's what we're doing. So thank you, David Cooper, for the suggestion. Um, So I hope you'll join us to go help out some people who are in need because I know there's a lot going on down there. They're out of power everywhere. It's going to be out for a while, probably. So, they need some help. Um, wait, have you guys ever been through a hurricane? No. I have been through. It's funny because I was down in the city for. Uh, <clears throat> there were two, one year apart: Hurricane Irene and then Hurricane Sandy. And then Hurricane Sandy was the bad one. Hurricane Irene was the first one. Uh, you know, in succession, um, and we were down in the city. And they closed the whole lower half of the city got closed. And then the second one came a year later. And uh, that was that first one. uh, I'm I'm sure I'm saying it right. Irene, Hurricane Irene was the first one. And uh, everybody didn't know what to expect, but they said it was going to be bad. And all of lower Manhattan was expected to flood. And there was nothing I could do. I just prepared for my shop to be engulfed with water my basement shop at the time. And there was nothing I could do. Everyone's like, what are you going to do with your machines? I'm like, I don't know what to do with them. I have nowhere to put them. And there's no time. Like I couldn't, like if I had all the help in the world, I'd put them above street level. And then what do I do with them? I can't put them in my apartment, but I was fully prepared to just go back and have four feet of water in my shop. Cause that's what the news kept saying. And there were sections of the lower East side that were completely submerged in water. There was this one garage it was an auto garage that uh, housed everybody in this complex. And there was like maybe a hundred cars and they were all completely underwater. This whole end of uh, Avenue C I'm on Avenue B. So the next street over was completely flooded from, you know, for a few blocks and it came close, but it did not do what they expected it to do, you know, as, as wide as they expected it to do. And then uh, the following year, the other hurricane came, I think it was the first one where upstate New York got hit harder than downstate New York. I can't remember. It's like my mind is mixing the both events up because they were so close together. But there was one of them where the hurricane went over New York City and then kept came upstate. So we like escaped the city and came upstate to get away from the rain. But the rain came up to the Catskills and just rained for like three days up here. And every 
every little bridge, every little uh, creek crossing got undermined because all the waterways undermined every bridge. And everywhere you went, you couldn't pass through because you don't realize how many little creeks and rivers all the roads go over. You know, some are very prominent and noticeable because it's like some memorial bridge. And others, it's just like a culvert. You don't even realize you're driving over a creek. And almost all of them were undermined. So everywhere you would try and drive, you'd have to drive a big detour. You'd like maybe have to go 25 miles out of your way to go like one mile because all the culverts were all washed out. So it was pretty, pretty devastating for a lot of people. And there's a couple of small towns here that completely got engulfed with water, like up to like five feet of water, you know, for the so-called hundred year flood. And now there's all types of interesting real estate available in those areas. And no one's interested in buying it because everyone's like, there's no way I'm going to buy that house that had five feet of water in it, you know, 10 years ago and anticipate another hundred year flood, which seems to happen every two years now. So, uh, yeah, I, I, and my house is very high up on a hill. My, high, my house happens to be like the highest house in this area. So I've been very lucky. And I knew it was bad. So that particular day, once the rain finally calmed down, I went for a drive. And just down the road from me, literally down a really steep hill, it's probably a couple hundred feet drop over a mile. You go down to the creek. And the creek that is usually about 20 feet to the water from the bridge. So you're on the bridge and it's about 20 feet down. The water was raging literally inches below the roadway. And I was just like, whoa, if the water is this high, it is engulfing so many properties. It was unbelievable. I I had no idea what to expect. I just knew that it continued to rain. The radios were out. Nothing was working. No internet. And so when I just took a little casual drive down the road just to see what the wind had blown down, I was completely amazed at how high the water was. The water was about 20 feet higher than it usually is. And there were sticks and branches all in the, the grating of the, uh, the sides of this bridge. So that was pretty crazy. And, you know, I had heard a farmer lost all of his horses and, you know, all of his farm equipment that was just down the river from where I was at that bridge. So and I've been lucky. I've been lucky to uh, avoid some of that devastation. Yeah. When I was in Savannah, I mean, I lived there for uh, 19 years or 20 years or something like that. And, uh, it was, you know, where that is, Savannah is in kind of like the crook of Florida and Georgia and South Carolina, where it all kind of bends around in there. And Savannah's right there in the armpit of that part. And I'm convinced that that geography makes it so that 99% of the time, storms will come in from the north or the south and they hit land above or below Savannah and then they bounce across it. And so in all the time that I was there, we never got a direct hit of, of any hurricane. There was one that came really close and we had to evacuate and that was a hassle, but like we didn't, you know, we didn't get flooded. We didn't lose anything. Um, and so like the most we ever had to deal with there was just having to evacuate a couple of times. And then we'd come back to, you know, a lot of trees down and stuff like that, but no real no flooding, even though we were right at sea level. But then you go a little bit south, a little bit north, and they just get walloped and so much water and so much, you know, like they lose power forever and stuff. We were always just really lucky in that little spot that we were in. But at the same time, I remember uh, we evacuated for, I think it was Matthew, a couple of years, uh, like a year or two before we moved. 
And I remember having to evacuate with young kids and with two dogs and with cats and go to Atlanta to hang out with our friends. And I was like, this is dumb. Like, why are we living in a place that we have to leave at a moment's notice because of weather that we can't control? <laughs> and I know every place has its things, but that was one of the final straws for me. It was just like, you know what? I think I'm ready to move. <laughs> just, And I can't imagine being, you know, in a place where the, the danger feels more real in Louisiana, anywhere in the Gulf, you know, a little bit north of Savannah or south of Savannah where they actually get hit. We never actually got hit. So I was just annoyed, but like they're dealing with a lot of stuff. So my heart goes out to all those people who have to try to come back from that stuff because that's, that's tough. But anyway, didn't want to drag us down. Just curious if you guys had any experience with that. Um, you want to you know something funny? Uh, when I was a kid, and I still have this weird thing, when I was a little kid, there was a, a couple of hurricanes, uh, and I started recognizing, I remember when I was just maybe five, six, seven years old, I started recognizing the news would hype the name of the hurricane. And for years, I was probably like in my 20s when I realized that I always thought that a name of a human was born when a hurricane was born. So like the name Ida, for instance, which happens to be my grandmother's name. So if I was the five-year-old Jimmy would assume that the name Ida, because I at the time I just always knew my grandmother was grandma. I didn't know when her real name. So if I was five years old and Hurricane Ida was being announced in the news or in the, like, the public media, I would assume that the name Ida was just invented for that storm. I thought that every time there was a hurricane, a name was invented, more simply put. And what well, I guess and then I wasn't they start naming people after hurricanes instead. Exactly. Of like I just I, I had this like you know when you're a kid and you just make these assumptions because nobody explains yeah. them to you. That was it. I just thought every time huh. a hurricane came, a name was born. And then one day I realized I'm like, wait, that name already exists. Why are they naming that hurricane Jim? That's my name already. You know, whatever it was. But <clears throat> I like I said, I was probably that's, that's like your in my name. I was in my <laughs> in my it. late teens or probably early twenties <laughs> before I paid close enough attention to realize that hurricanes aren't the birthplace of of names. <laughs> I mean, I can totally relate. Uh, I mean, to that type of thing that you just take advantage, you just assume and you never really think about the fact. Yeah. Like I remember in college, me and my friend Adams were driving around. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he goes, that's why they call it a windshield. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and he was like, because it shields you from the wind. And he just like never put it together that that's where the name came from. Like, hmm. right. anyway. It does. That's what it's for. Yeah. Anyway, so what's going on? What's new? You're about to leave on a trip, right? I'm going. Yeah, we're supposed to go in the morning. That's why we're taking early. Thank you guys for accommodating me. Uh, we're packing up. We got a couple of cabins booked along the way. We're going to camp a little bit and then also have a couple of little reserve cabins. We're going to work our way over to Wyoming and Utah. Uh, Utah? Not Utah. Uh, I don't know. The one near Canada over Wyoming. I forget what it's called. I don't know. And Montana. Be- Montana? Montana. Yeah. So we're going to work our way up over there and come back. Washington? <clears throat> no, Montana. That's our end, and then we'll turn around and come back. But we have a couple stops planned along the way. And uh, did you know that Jeeps, the rugged Jeep that's meant to go anywhere and pull anything, doesn't come with a trailer hitch or the electric to plug in a trailer? Didn't know that until yesterday. (laughs) The whole time I own a Jeep, I never had to trailer anything with it. Taylor uses it. It's really her car. And 
<clears throat> I looked at him like, I, she put a trailer hitch. I didn't know. I thought it came with it. She's like, no, no, I put that on there from U-Haul. And then she put a trailer hitch on it just to put one of those like luggage racks where you like plug in like a luggage thing to, cause she took a trip to California a couple of years ago to pick me up. And I didn't know that you need to plug in. You got to like take the tail light up or anyway, we figured it all out, but um, I didn't know that. And that's annoying. I just assumed that a Jeep is the type of car that would always come with a seven pin connector, just, you know, always ready for action. But I guess we got the, uh, the cheapest version. I had no idea, but Again, that's that's another assumption I made as a kid that Jeeps are all ready for action all the time. You got to pay for that action to be ready. Uh, so I got that prepared, and I'm working on my my enclosed trailer. Which it's funny when you go. Maybe this is a topic, but you go from this feeling of desperation of <clears throat> working hard against the deadline and thinking like the world is closing in on you and everything is horrible to just like gently prodding the client and saying, do you really need this October 1st? They're like, no, nah, you could have till January 1st. And then like the heavens open up, the rainbows <laughs> come out of the clouds. And it's like, oh, I can totally relax. Because here I am thinking like, okay, I don't have to sleep for five days. If we go to Wyoming and work our way back, that gives me four days to build a kitchen, uh, one day to build all the interior, three hours to do all the wiring. You know, this is like I'm doing the math in my head because we're going away. I have to be done by October 1st. But then uh, I call the client. I'm like, you said October 1st. Does that mean that it's going to be delivered to a warehouse and it's going to sit there for three months? He goes, pretty much. I go, okay, can I hang on to it? He goes, yeah, have as long as you want. I was like, okay, great. Because so I gave you a deadline because I thought you needed one. <laughs> That's what he told now me. it's great because you can procrastinate until the middle of December. It'll be awesome. 100%. No, Jimmy, no, well, you have no idea where you're going, do you? Because you just said Wyoming, and a moment ago it was Montana. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we're going to go to, we, we got to stop in Wyoming and then Montana. Those are our two big, oh, two okay. big things. Yeah, and then we'll, then we'll work our way back. But uh, I was just so panicked. Even Derek said, Derek goes, I could, he could, he goes, I could hear the desperation in your voice when we were on the phone the other day. And he goes, and now, now you feel like you can conquer the world. That's like, that's simply because the deadline got moved up two months. And that's the only reason why. But I am wrapping part one today of the, the, the trailer build. And, and I keep saying trailer, and a lot of people are confused. They think the trailer I'm building is the one I'm going to go traveling with. I have an Oregon trailer. It's a teardrop trailer made by Oregon. It's a really cool trailer, and I'll do some stories on it. This one of the goals on my trip is to make a movie about it and obviously do some social media for those guys. But the one I'm building is kind of more like a bar cart. It's meant to look like an old... 60s 50s little camper trailer and they're going to serve liquor out of it and this job was born out of the trailers that i made last summer this time last year me and aaron and mike and everybody were all hands on deck making those 50 display trailers that we made which were completely non-functioning trailers i I have this reputation of making 50 teardrop trailers none of which ever worked they were just for display but um because a lot of people come to me and they're like, so when you made the teardrop, what axle did you use? I'm like, I used a two by four because it wasn't real true. And uh, what, what type of taillights did you use? I said, I just used little circles made out of CNC plywood because it wasn't a real trailer. Uh, so, but now I'm making a real trailer, a real one. So this job was born out of that job because somebody saw the the marketing team. So I, I, I do a lot of work for Bullet Bourbon and, and Dickel with whiskey and all those guys, but 
the the reality is I work for a marketing firm and those clients are their biggest clients. So that's why I do most of that work. So when I work for Bullet Bourbon, I'm not directly working for Bullet Bourbon, I'm working for a marketing team that hires me to build all this stuff that we conceive together or sometimes they come up with it. And this trailer was one of those things. They were hired by this wine company. And we went back and forth on the texture because we would have had to order this. Like you see some of these trailers have like a corrugated side, which look cool. And they said they were going to do a wrap. So the whole entire thing is going to get a big advertising wrap. And I said, if I was the guy putting the advertising wrap on a corrugated trailer, I said, I probably would be cursing you the entire time. I said, I could imagine it's going to pucker and bubble and you're not going to get a good wrap against an entire corrugated side. And the corrugations that they spec'd was like a square corrugation. So it's like you have like a one inch depression and like a three inch wide expression, another one inch wide deep depression. So, you know, it was very textured corrugation. And I said, what if we just make it smooth? And in my mind, I'm like, you know, make it smooth. Like it's something I could just go buy at the store instead of ordering it ahead of time. And uh, then you could put the texture of a corrugation into the graphic, just like the graphic they sent me. They sent me a CGI and the texture was was in the CGI. I was like, you could take this graphic right here and print it on flat vinyl, stick it on the trailer from 10 feet away. The whole thing would look like any corrugation you want. And they're like, oh, wow, that's great. So <clears throat> it made it easier for me because I didn't have to order special 12 foot long sheets made custom for, there's a trailer corrugation company that makes all these textures. You got to order them, you know, three months in advance. And then, you know, hopefully you order the right amount. It took 14 sheets of aluminum to cover this thing. 14 sheets. Uh, and I had most of them cut to eight feet because in every direction the trailer is like eight feet, you know, vertically and in, in, in the width, left to right, you know, over the, over the wheel wells. And then top to bottom, is nothing's bigger than eight feet. I figured if I can just get the exterior done for video one, and then I can do the interior for video two. And that's, that's how it's working out. And uh, today I'll wrap that by putting in the taillights. And uh, for the end of the video, I'll have the taillights and the door handle. And so I'll be able to open and lock the door. So I'm excited. I got past, uh, uh, you know, a couple of big hurdles. So we went from that panic, like never ever going to have this done to like, oh, wow, this is cool. I can't believe I did this. So I'm excited. I'll shut up now. (laughs) (laughs) It's about time. (laughs) Have fun on that trip. Are you looking forward to it? Are you going to be like Bob and feel anxious the whole time? Well, I tell you what, if this deadline didn't move, I probably would not have fun. Because yeah. the whole entire time I'd be trying to figure out what's the best way to make a, you know, the sink and the, the dirty water and this, you know, all these things that still need to be done. But now I can take my time with that. And and then, oh, I did my hammer restoration video. That came up quick. I thought I was going to do that after my trip, but uh, it turned out to work out pretty quickly. I restored, I've always buy these dollar hammers. I found three to do the video. I probably have 10 of them somewhere. They all end up just getting thrown under a bench every time I buy them. And so that was a fun video. That's uh, a lot of people like that video. And that was a Weaver leather video. And that's what Weaver wants me for. They want me to do like the weird leather stuff that most people wouldn't ordinarily think of, you know, not like leather satchels and stuff, you know. So it's fun trying to come up with those like little side left of center weird leather projects that aren't, you know, necessarily traditional leather projects. And that was a fun one. Just restoring the leather stack handle on those S-wing hammers. That was a good one. So now I have those three hammers and I don't want to ever separate them. They're like three orphans. Like I have to make sure they stay together. <laughs> you so should I, weld all of them together. So you have like a three 
pronged <laughs> some, tamarind. So, somebody said, uh, I'm, I'm upset that you didn't make three heads with one handle. That's what I was expecting. <laughs> there you go. Cool. Well, David, what have you been up to? Uh, a few days ago, we put out the, the toolbox, and that came out really good. Getting some good feedback on that. It's weird how the universe works. So both of you have car projects and secretly, or maybe not so secretly, I like, I've been jealous. I'm like, that's so cool. I grew up around a muscle car, my dad working on one and I've, you know, I've watched all the shows and, and stuff. And I'm like, that's cool. It's unfortunate. I, I just don't have the room for that. I can't do that. So don't, don't get too attached to a project like that. And, um, my uncle who got my dad's Impala after my dad passed away, contacted me last week and said, Hey, I think I need to sell the Impala. And I was just like, I'll take it. I'll, I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. Don't know where it's going to go, but I'll take it. Cool. And That's cool. He almost teared up. He's like, Oh, I'm so glad it's going to stay in the family. And oh, whatever. Cool. so, um, he wants to keep it until after Labor Day so he can drive it a few more times. So in a week or two, it will be in my possession. He wanted, he, it's not nothing, it's not original. It doesn't have the original motor. The original motor blew up sometime back in the eighties. So it's got something else in there. It's not an SS. It's a 67 Pala, uh, Chevy Impala. It's not an SS. My dad wanted to convert it to an SS. So maybe that's something I'll do in the future. Who knows? Um, and it, he added a vinyl top to it and it's, it's not showroom ready, but it's part partially restored. I ran it into the garage back in like 1992 and my dad primered, he fixed the dent and primered it, but it's not been painted. So it, for 30 some years, my mistake has just been highlighted on the back quarter panel. <laughs> so, uh, I feel like, like, like Jimmy said, it's, it's, it's destiny for me to finally fix my hair that I did 30 years ago. So that'll be one of the things. What, um, my uncle Paul, I think he wanted to get it like showroom ready so he could take it to these car shows. And what he realized is a paint job for a classic car like that is like $20,000. Yeah, that's it that's right there, right. except it's got a black vinyl top. Oh, man, yep. that's so cool. Yeah. Um, and so a paint job is like $20,000. And yeah, I think I like the white better. I was like, if I ever get Yours a paint... Yours is white? It's white, Yours yeah. White? Yeah. white and black? Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, so Jimmy's showing, showing photos. And I'm like, if I ever get painted, what color would I go? And I'm like, I'm looking at all these different colors. I'm like, white still looks the meanest. It just looks tough. And it's got the black oh, interior. This is it right here, just like that one. Yeah, just like that one. Yep, with a gray rear quarter. <laughs> yeah, with 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 a primer spot on the back rear quarter panel. So that's a cool car, man. Yeah, I'm looking it's, forward to seeing what you're doing with it. It's really nice. So there's there's definitely some projects in there. Whether or not it'll be YouTube content, we'll see. Um, it could be another one of those things. Like this is this is my this is this is this is what i do into my old age just work on this or maybe it's content i don't know i um, see you getting pretty like ocd about it getting it like super perfect i i, I do so it, it was in an accident either in the late 70s or early 80s um i'm not sure the frame might be straight but the rear bumper 
hangs down a little bit on the right side. So like the gaps aren't even. It's like, you know, how yeah, that's like, the type of stuff that'll drive you crazy. Yeah. And I think it's, it's always driven me crazy since I was a kid. Like those little, little things always bug me. So on the <laughs> left side, it might be like a quarter inch gap. And on the right side, it's like an inch gap. And that's, it's a big thing. Yeah. Um, I definitely can't afford a $20,000 paint job right now, but maybe we can see about just getting the rear quarter panel. I don't know. One thing at a time. I probably won't do anything to it until spring. And uh, so it'll price it in storage. So I'm trying to figure out where to put it for now. My buddy's going to... That was going to be my question is like, do you have a a place to store it safely over the winter? Uh, um, I'm going to rent out my buddy's garage. He owns a bunch of properties. So he's got a garage and I'm going to rent out for like 75 bucks for now. Um, We are having people come over to give an estimate on expanding our our car garage. So we might add another bay. Um. Which I'm excited. I would I would so much rather have the car at home to work on it at home on my free time. Plus, expanding another bay into the garage could mean I could get a milling machine in the future. Like it would just add mm. a little bit more room. So now I'm like super excited to expand the garage. So I thought you were gonna say like you know adding a go kart garage next to like a <laughs> short little door and stuff like that'd be awesome. Like a yeah. golf cart. Kelly makes Kelly makes funny me because. I am not the person that she met, you know, 12 years ago. Like I wasn't in the racing. I wasn't into go-karts. I wasn't into muscle cars. And now I have all of, like, I didn't even, I wasn't even a woodworker then. And I keep picking up all these little things and, and hobbies. And so I'm a completely different person than I was 12 years ago, or I'm into different things. Um, but that's the, that's the fun part of life is just, finding stuff to do. Like I look at my grandpa who's 99 years old and he's always busy. He's always doing something. And I'm like, I never, I never want to retire. I always want to have something to do. I always want to be working on something or learning something or, or just, just doing something. I, I can't imagine just sitting around watching movies and TV all the time at an old age. So I always want to keep busy. So it's, and I, I think to myself, like, I take up a lot of space for one human being. Like, I have, <laughs> I have a wood shop, and now we got a, uh, I have a trailer to sto- score, store the go kart, and now we're trying to expand the garage so I can store a, a, a classic car. Um, you know, we have a decent sized house. Like, I take up a lot of space, and it's such a contrast to growing up. We didn't have much, and we grew up in a tiny house, and and. Uh, I don't know. Life is life is crazy. I've been very fortunate, very fortunate. Yeah, I I agree. I have, I've been as well. I think it's funny you talking about her. You know, you being a different person than when she met you. You kind of could think about anybody in that way. That <clears throat> when you encounter somebody for the first time, you meet them as they are in that moment, even if they are a person who changes daily. Right? You meet them at a specific moment in time where they have certain experiences and certain interests and certain motivations and all these different things. And that's who you meet. And then depending on the rate of change of that person or how often they like to re kind of direct themselves or get into new things, you start to see them change. And for some people that change is really slow. Some people it's really fast. And the longer you know somebody, the more of those changes you're going to run into, but everybody's like that. Like it, it's, it's not fair to say like, 
that anybody is different than when you met them because everybody's different right. when you met them because you, you don't meet somebody across their life. You meet somebody once and then you know them, you know, <laughs> right. it's kind of an interesting thing to think about. Um, I was talking last week about, I think my recommendation last week was for the, um, the Chip Gaines book that I can't remember the title of right now, but I'm listening to, and it is called No Pain, No Gains. So I listened to more of this book and I've listened to his books before a couple of times, different books, and they're good. I like the way that he writes. I like, it's just very like conversational and it's, you know, like if you're watching him on TV, how silly and goofy is, it's like that. But this book, there's something different about it. There's something a little bit deeper and a little bit more, you get kind of a different picture of who he is as a person and the things that he thinks are important. But he talks a whole lot about uh, intentionally going to meet people who you don't really have any reason to meet. And he talks about getting to know people uh, instead of, how does he say it? Instead of relationships being transactional, there's there's another word that he uses for it. But he, he just gives the point that like, you can go to find out somebody, uh, find out stuff about somebody new as a way to just know more about the world but through meeting a person rather than trying to find out if this person will be useful to you later on or mm-hmm. if you will be useful to them because a lot of relationships are just purely transactional. And it's gotten me thinking a lot about how I perceive people that I don't know. And this comes to mind because she or you, when you met, saw each other as a particular thing. And in the moment you were either, you know, attracted to it or you wanted to get to know it better or whatever. But it's kind of interesting that we immediately make these kind of, without thinking about it, these judgment calls about people when we meet them. I'm like, is this person somebody that I think could be useful or engaging to me and they're doing the same thing about you and it's kind of different to look at somebody and just say like can i learn more about the world by getting to know this person or can i can i be you know confronted with new experiences through this person that i wouldn't have otherwise that that gives people a different value than they had before you know uh, probably a more realistic value but anyway that book is you know, it's not life-changing or anything, but it's it's brought up some pretty interesting things about meeting people and getting to know people and why people are worth more than what they can do for you. Um, I think it's pretty cool. But <clears throat> someday we'll anyway, get to that, meet that's people again. Yeah, yeah, that would be cool. <laughs> it, would, it would be nice to run into new people. It, it, as, as far as um, I don't, I don't always enjoy going to. I like I enjoy being at the events. I don't enjoy the anxiety of I got to leave home and go to these events, but it's always fun. It's always rewarding. Um, but I skip a lot because it's, I, I, the anxiety is just too much. So I, I skip a lot, but I am really missing the hangouts and, and going to like a maker fair or, or, or a meetup. So I'm, I can't wait for whenever that's going to happen again. It's probably going to be another year or so, but well, just as a reminder, Maker Camp is October 8, 9, 10. You're in the Catskills. Everybody <laughs> wants to come. Call the Blackthorn Resort in East Durham. How big is that event? Like the, in the past couple of years, how many people? Well, come uh, to that? year one, we had about 150. Year two, we had 20, which was COVID. 
And now there's a lot of people gearing up. I'm pretty sure Laura's coming. Hopefully she's still able to come. Everything's changing so rapidly. But uh, the guys from Coal Iron Forge are coming. A lot of blacksmiths will be there. We're going to do the timber framing event. But it seems like more and more people are coming. Uh, Michael Alm and uh, Wesley Treat are building a big giant dinosaur to burn, like Burning Man for the end. So they they call me and they say, save any scrap you have. I said, of course I will. So um, there's going to there's gonna be a couple of things. We even talked about doing... It's a very free form event, which is what's fun about it. It's it's not like it's like basically and not to disparage Maker Fair, but Maker Fair is like a big glorified flea market in a way. This is really more about sharing skills. Anybody can come. You don't need to fill out an application to take a booth. There is no booth. If you want like my sister showed up and they gave her a picnic table and she filled the picnic table with jewelry <clears> and had other people <throat> sit around the table and experiment with using jeweler saws and making jump rings and stuff. So it's uh, very freeform in that way. It's almost like a lot of people kind of said this is like the Woodstock of maker events because it's not, there's not, there's not this like, uh, you don't have to stay in the lines basically. And there's no formal, you know, level of entry. It's just like, if you want to come and hang out, I mean, there might be, I'm sure there's fees to get in, but that's, you know, to cover the cost of the event. But in general, the family that holds the event is the family that owns the place. And so they're not very uptight about security. They're not super uptight about, you know, where you park your car. Just don't drive over anybody. Like, uh, you know, uh, people pull their car right up to like certain spot. I mean, you know, it wasn't overwhelmed with cars, but it was very freeform. And you could camp in a tent if you want, or you can camp in one of them. Well, you could rent a room or camp in a tent. Or I was thinking about uh, bringing my teardrop trailer over there when the event is on. I, what I plan on doing for the event is I'm going to put one of my giant bandsaws on my, my car carrier, which is like a eight by 16 foot trailer. I'm going to forklift it onto that and set it up, bolt it down and then drive over there and just leave it on that. And just like freestyle bandsaw stuff uh, from time to time, names and logos and whatever. So I will be uh, my, C- my own CNC over there. Oh, ShopBot will be there with a CNC machine. They're going to bring a machine. So it's going to be fun. It's going to be very, like I said, very chill. There's going to be a bunch of tents set up that the event puts up. And just various people will be placed inside tents. Like, you know, you don't want the CNC out in case it rains. Jackman did power carving last year. He made his big S-wing hammer at the event. And there was a, a couple of lathes set up to turn pens. Yeah, it'll be fun. One of these days I'll hopefully make it. Um, let's see, for me, we've got a video. We didn't have one out last week because we were trying to get ahead. This week, the video that's coming out is um, a stair railing that we made for Anthony's house. So they bought a house, I don't know, it's been about a year ago maybe, and uh, it had never really had any significant updates made to it. And so they've been renovating this house and bringing it out of the 60s and doing an awesome job there's a a stair rail like they have downstairs and so there's kind of a railing that goes around just an opening in the floor where the stairs go down and it was super you know loose and iffy and not super uh strong and he has young kids so he started designing a new railing to go around it that's real beefy and modern looking and so we went through some different design options on that trying to make it reasonable for anybody to do whether they had any significant metal tools or anything came up with a really cool design um and it's it's simple materials but it looks awesome and they did a great job you know like changing the space around it as well like 
changed out trim and painted the walls and added floors and added art and lights and, you know, all this stuff. So it's a really big room transition, but the railing itself uh, is, it's pretty striking in the space. So pretty excited about how that came out. It's got diagonal bal- balusters, is that what you call them? The rod thingies? I can, never can remember the words. They're all very similar, but the rods are at a 45 degree angle. So you have uh, these kind of wooden oak frames uh, painted black with these metal rods going across. It looks really cool. So that's the video that's coming out this week. And then we're working on um, videos for the next couple of weeks about working on the Karma Gia. And I finally got the body and the chassis separated the other day, <gasps> which is kind of crazy. Oh my God. That's scary. It was scary, but it was pretty cool. And I was I was kind of worried going into it that, you know, these bolts, there's 22 bolts that hold the thing together. And they've been in there for 50 years. So my assumption was that some of them would break trying to get them out or some of, you know, I'd have to drill them out and then that causes a whole nother thing. Every one of these bolts with an impact driver came right out. No problem. Which was Are you going to, did you relief. remove all the, you're going to remove all the wiring and everything? Oh yeah, I've cut it out, and that feels super weird. Oh. That feels really weird to be leaning down in a car just with wire cutters and just cutting everything. <laughs> Forget it; it's over now. Throw it away. It's nerve wracking. <laughs> oh yeah, this car is trashed. <laughs> this car is. You you'll is buy not a working. You'll car obviously anymore. buy like a proper wire harness and just. Get yeah, yeah. yeah. The cool thing about the Volkswagen stuff is that every single piece is still manufactured, you know, by third party people. Um, and so, yeah, you can get a brand new wiring harness that's all modern, shielded. You know, it's the right uh, m- modern gauges and stuff like that. So it comes pre-chewed by the rats. You don't have to worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got that on the way. But, I mean, you know, redoing the electrical is still just so far away. But it was really cool to, to get them separated and to, like, lift up. And, and it's also not heavy you know, as heavy as other ones. So I could get on the front of it by myself and lift the body enough to hear it cracking away, hear it separating. And so in the, in the video, there's a sound when I lift the car and it's not a fake sound. It's, (laughs) I know people are going to be like, you added that in post, but it's like this. (laughs) (laughs) No, sounds like that's not, it's not that sound, but yeah. Anyway, is there an order of operations in in a car restoration? Probably. (laughs) Uh, like, does it matter if you, like I, on the shows, when you do a total restoration, you know, they get it down to the bare frame and then they, they, they work their way back. But I think for most people, that's not, that's not practical. Do you work on the inside first? Do you work on the outside first? Do you work on what you can, what your budget affords first? Is, is there a standard? Honestly, the, I don't know. I have no clue. And I'm, I'm going about this completely the wrong way. This is just how I do things where like I'm figuring it out as I go. I'm not doing the amount of research I should do. I, I have a stack of books literally right there next to me, not out where the car is. They're here. <laughs> and so I don't even like have the research at hand to f- figure out exactly. I'm just taking stuff apart and mm-hmm. then I'm going to figure I'm trying to keep track of it. Um, but as far as putting it back together, I don't really know. I mean, I'm watching videos of other people do stuff. I'm hoping that when it comes down to it, I just know where to start and just do kind of a step at a time. But there is part of me that is legitimately afraid of just getting too far 
in the reconstruction and doing it in the wrong order and then realizing that I'm going to have to undo, you know, stuff. I'm just trying to remember as I'm taking things apart, the kind of layers of, <laughs> of stuff that's coming out. The interior uh, is all going to be last. The electrical is almost last. But then underneath that, there's like some sound deadening material that you have to put on the floor pans. And I don't know exactly when that's supposed to go on. Um, you know, stuff like that. There's like seals and, and rubber pieces that go in between things that I have to make sure I get in there. So there's probably like a master list somewhere of start here and go in this order to put it back together. Uh, but I haven't found that yet. There's a website called the Samba that I've actually been a member of for a very, very long time because it's all about uh, rebuilding uh, Volkswagens. And I did find a really cool post there one time that was, uh, I've got it bookmarked and it's, it is a numbered list of, it's called like how to restore a Carmagia. And it's a numbered list of these are the things that you have to do to completely restore it. So that's, you know, a place that I actually need to spend time reading, but it's just like with the R2D2 thing, you go to a forum that is full of. 20 plus years of people's knowledge and experience, it is so overwhelming to look at. It's just too much to take in. And But it's good to know that it's there and you can go search for a specific thing if you need. But to just go read, you know, like to read that numbered list they and all of it, oh, I, I, I just can't retain it. Like I could spend the time doing it, but I wouldn't keep it, you know. So that's where I'm at. I'm, I'm just in the, I can disassemble things. Um, and then I'm going to start taking stuff down to bare metal and trying to prime it to preserve it and then start on the body work. That's my plan is to get like a, a primed chassis with new floor pans that I could roll around and then start working on the body and just try to probably spend six months or a year learning how to do body work and getting the body in the shape that it needs to be. And then I'll figure out what's next. Because I figured that's like a big enough chunk that on the days where I'm not actually doing that and trying to figure out that work, I can be figuring out what's going to be the next step past that. So, Are you looking to paint it yourself? I think so. And I know everybody out there is like, oh, don't do that. You're going to be disappointed. Honestly, guys, I was, gonna, I, was, it, I was just going to tell both you guys, painting, you know, you guys both have experience painting a little bit. It is a lot easier than, I mean, I'm going to probably get yelled at for saying this. It's a lot easier than it's made out to be. Obviously, there's a skill involved. You know, mm -hmm. the skill is knowing exactly how to lay that wet edge down and make sure it doesn't run, which I painted my whole truck. I got a couple of runs, but not not, not nearly as many as I thought because you could always just stop and add more paint later. Yes, Dave? I think what scares me is I, the environment which in which I have to paint it. So. Yeah. I'm just in, I'm just in a, uh, a you know a regular car garage. So right. am I? Do, do I have to sheet everything in the entire well, garage and then close it off this so bugs is, don't land on it? Well, yeah, you know, obviously, if you're going to paint the whole car, that's one thing. That's like a big like I painted my car in sections. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think I painted the whole note. Well, I painted the the 
the uh, primer in sections. So you can paint just the front clip or just the front fenders or just the doors, you know, or you're obviously going to have to paint if you're going to paint, uh, you know, the interior of some of the parts. If you're going to change the color entirely, Bob, you're probably going to have to do that, you know, paint the door jams and stuff. That's, you know, um, but you can, and I wonder if you could rent them, these, these blow up spray booths, you know, you could find a piece of property or, you know, right huh. you know in your driveway yeah. and there's these blow up spray booths but obviously they need to be in place for some period of time yeah there's probably more to it than just simply doing that but there are ways of creating a spray booth that's a little bit simpler than you know i want to do you, it you, myself because that would yeah. be more that would be so rewarding i would yeah. i'd be afraid of like okay i spend you know a couple thousand dollars or whatever it is it, the investment in all the equipment and then I'm like, oh, this isn't for me. I'm screwing this up big time. So the inflatable spray booths, just as a quick Google, $675 on Wayfair. Oh, oh yeah. You can get, a, okay. it's a, it looks giant. It looks like you could pull two cars into it. It's very long. Okay. It's got structure. I mean, it's probably not two cars. It's just a little image I'm looking at. But, you know, six, seven hundred bucks. Um, so you're talking about like a $20,000 paint job if you can get the confidence right. to do the paint yourself and then you just pay less than a thousand dollars for a booth to keep it in and keep all the paint all the bugs out and the one dust thing you shouldn't stuff, do you know? is you shouldn't let it inflate get the car all wet and then deflate it <laughs> imagine that panic situation like somebody kicks the plug on the fan like, oh man your wife's in a great video on her computer she's like what is this for she unplugs it and hold you your car's all wet and the thing starts to deflate around your car and you're like no trying to tent pole it I might have to hold on to that and do that in a video because that would be fantastic. You show your wife like plugging in a computer. She's like, what is this? I don't know. And then she plugs in her iPhone <laughs> in the house. Uh, my, my first investment is w- w- it might it might currently fit in the garage next to Kelly's car. So I'm currently cleaning out the garage to see if it'll fit, but it won't be a place to work on it. Like there'll just be no room. So we do want to expand the garage. But in the meantime, I'm like, I, I've, I've been looking up car dollies and Harbor Freight sells this Daytona um, set where it's a dolly they that go goes on each wheels. one of the tires and you can push it up against the wall. So I'm looking at, the, at that. And this is like a $400 investment right off the bat, but I think it would make life a lot easier. Do you guys have any experience with car dollies? You just got to have an f- extremely level floor. Like I could do it in my new shop, which is perfectly level. And I was thinking about getting them for the Cadillac. Cause, uh, but now, since uh, unfortunately, obviously, since Aaron passed away, I have his shop now. And I'm going to move the Cadillac into that. And I might put those on it. You could stick them under the wheels and jack each one up individually. You don't have to yeah. drive onto them. It, kinda, yeah. it, it cradles the wheel from the outside. And then you jack it up and pick it up. Yeah, so I, th- I was thinking about getting them. But like I said, you just need a level ground. It doesn't have any like pits and stuff in the concrete. And Aaron's garage is like that. And so is my new big barn. You just have to have a smooth floor. Another thing you might want to look at um, that I kind of looked at for the Carmen Ghia was um, a collapsible um, carport. So for 300 bucks or so at places like Rural King and uh, Tractor Supply, you can get these metal framed carports that with like a canvas and so they're kind of you can stake them down so they're semi-permanent but at the same time you know they're not they have no foundation anything like that so you can knock them down but it, at least <clears throat> excuse me at least acts as a, a weather protector for a vehicle that's going to be out you know i 
the ones that were big enough to actually put a car in, even something as small as a car Kia, and walk around to work on, those start to go up a little bit in price. So if you're wanting to work on it in there, it's a different story, you know. But if you just need to cover it and and protect it for a little bit, that might be something to look at. As far as the paint, when I was um, when I first got my Vespa, I'm trying to think what year this would have been, 2002, three, something like that. Um, it was the first vehicle of any kind that I had ever done anything to. I knew nothing about any of it. And I completely ripped it down, uh, stripped the paint off of it. And then in my, fr- I didn't have a garage. So my friend had a garage and we built a two by four frame and then just wrapped it with, uh, you know, big plastic sheeting as cheaply as possible. Did a box fan in and a box fan out. And I painted the thing with um, a, a cheap gun and a small compressor, which was not ideal in any way whatsoever. But the paint turned out really good, and it didn't have any dust, and it didn't have any bugs because it was just enclosed. You know, So I, obviously, the nicer setup, you're going to have better results. But it is absolutely possible to do a decent paint job on something at, at a pretty low cost. Now, I will say that one of the big drawbacks of doing that with the equipment that I had on hand was it limit it limited the type of paint that I could use. So I did use auto paint, but at the time I couldn't use like the multi-stage thing that like Jimmy was talking about. I couldn't do that. I had to kind of look for like what's the most realistic pre-mix single shot kind of thing that I could get. And what I ended up with was not a perfectly smooth finish. It had kind of an orange peel to it if you're up close to it, but I mean, a couple of feet away, you can't see it. Luckily it was bright orange. So the orange peel kind of worked because <laughs> it like, you know, it kind of gave it like a good texture and, but it, it looks smooth from a few feet away. So anyway, it is absolutely possible to, to, uh, you know, paint your own vehicles. Well, obviously what? the bigger, nicer setup, the better result. Realistically, how, easy or hard is it to just take off a rear quarter panel and paint that off the car? Is that, a, is that possible? The rear quarters are welded in place. Oh, okay. Everything from the doors back is welded in place. I changed the rear quarter on a Cadillac once and uh, my dad had a 78 Cadillac Coupe de Ville and it was, I love the car. It was in perfect condition. He bought it with like zero miles on it from his neighbor and it was always a car I loved and he called me one day and he goes, he goes, uh, <clears throat> today's your lucky day. You get to take my Cadillac. He goes, but there's a caveat. I go, what? He goes, I just got rear-ended at a red light. So the whole back <laughs> is destroyed. He goes, but it's yours. <laughs> so he gave me the Cadillac with the whole destroyed back. And I was still living on Long Island at the time in college. And I took the car and I found a donor car nearby. And I bought that car for like a hundred bucks. And I cut off the whole rear quarter from literally from like the driver's side taillight all the way across to the rear door on the, uh, the rear of the passenger door. And I changed that whole thing, cut it all off and welded it back on. It was such a learning experience. I did it strictly to learn and I did it well. I did it really good. I had to have the car brought in and the frame straightened. So I did all this pretty heavy duty body work at the time. And uh, I figured out how to do it. I never did finish the car to like a perfect finish. I just got it physically all back in line. I never finished the paint job on it before I ended up selling it. But uh, it was a huge learning experience. But for you to change the rear quarter, again, you got to either decide where you want to cut it. 
if you want to cut out just the dents and then replace just the dented area or go literally from like the door buckle, like the, the, the door all the way back and you got to remove the back bumper and you'll find out where all the, the seams are, all the hot, the, what do you call them? The pinch welds. And you can cut each one of the pinch welds one at a time and then the whole thing will pop off, but it's only a one-way trip, you know, when you're putting it back on and you have to put it back on, you know, in a rough state, not necessarily finished clean painted because you have to weld and do all that. So front fenders you can paint, but it's it's really best to paint them in place because then once you're putting them on, if you go to open the door and the, the door is not adjusted, you could chip the paint right at the door belt there. You know, so it it's it, like a hood you could take off and put on more easily, like the, like the top, the engine cover and the trunk lid. Those would be more easily like painted elsewhere and then put in place. But those other panels that yeah, you ding them up, putting them in, because sometimes you have to wrestle them into place. So that would be my advice. What a rabbit hole this is going to turn into. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but oh, you I, don't even know yet, man. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think you need, like, how is the quarter completely creased along everything? Because you probably can cut it back, cut off. Oh, it's, my dad fixed the dent. So right. it's, it's, it's uh, he, he bonded it and it's primered. So right, you just gotta um, it's, it it's white and then it's just got a gray streaker primer that goes along the entire quarter panel. So right. it would need oh, yeah, to be resanded and. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. We're talking car talk. We didn't plan on going into car talk. The other night I had a, 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 a about a one hour window I'd finished up and I was like, whatever I'm going to do on the travel trailer, I'll do tomorrow. And so I took the radiator out of the Cadillac. And I was trying to, I was like, no, this will be easy. All I got to do is unbolt. And then I realized I should have taken the fan off because like, like, like millimeters of like metal flange was in the way. But so I put the radiator back down in position and tried to take the fan blade off. And it was impossible because the fan blade was put on literally in 1957 and hasn't been taken off since. It seems like that. And there was no way I could break these bolts. I was able to wrestle the fan out of by shifting the blade as I pulled it up. Like I had like the tube at the bottom of the radiator, like intersected between two fan blades. And I lifted it up a little bit, turned the fan blade, lifted it up a little bit, turned the fan blade, lifted it up. And I was able to get it out without damaging anything. And today, after we're done, I'm going to take the radiator to uh, somebody to rebuild it because there's a few leaks in it. But I looked online to say, like, you know, like the way I do these things usually is like, I'll just buy a replacement part. And I looked online. I could not find, not only could I not find the exact one, but ones for like 56 and 59 Cadillacs are like $1,000. So I'll bring it in. I'll get it rebuilt for probably a couple hundred dollars. And that'll be that. And it'll be the original one. I'll put it right back in. It looks perfect, except that there's cracks and leaks all over it somewhere because there's a puddle under the front of the car. It seems like this car hasn't been started in probably 12 or 13 years. So when I finally got it started, all of a sudden the engine had all this pressure in it and all these cracks seemed to be like, all right, I'm going to let go today. Sorry. You know, so these cracks started in the, in the, it ran perfectly and there was no drips, but after I let it run for a little while, it started bubbling and steaming out of certain cracks and it's just the right thing to do. And then I took the hose off the, the upper hose and I pull and it's the upper hose that has like a, a spring in it to keep it from collapsing when you bend it. And I pulled it off and I looked in it and the, and the spring is all rotted. There's, the spring is in pieces. So it might even be the original spring from 1957. So there's like this big coil that keeps the pipe from collapsing, but that is in pieces and pieces of it went down into the water pump. But the water pump has the, the, uh, the thermostat. This is real old school car stuff. Everything's very practical in the way it was set up. So the thermostat is closed. So I was able to just pick out the pieces that were sitting on top of the thermostat. 
So it wasn't. It's just like looking down inside an open heart valve, and the and the valve is closed, so I could just remove that without a problem. That's good because that could get nasty. I mean, yeah, tear up your water pump and everything. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, it's 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 fun figuring this stuff out, and then you just got to always remind yourself when you start taking things apart. Somebody put it together. <laughs> take it apart, put it back together. Yeah, somebody wasn't me. Yeah, but I mean, like you said, somebody like, did that for a living. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know, like a human being was able to assist. This wasn't like dropped on the earth from another galaxy. You know, so somebody, somebody with the same dexterity and brains and eyes as me put this together. So I have all that same ability to take it apart and then reassemble it. And so it's it's like a little comfort for me to like stop when you get frustrated. You look back, you're like, all right. Somebody as capable as me just put this together. Well, put this together 25, 30, 40 years ago. I could, I could figure this out. This isn't that complicated. Uh, well, we're about an hour in. I don't know what we talked about. Oh, wow. I sure. it was so late. <laughs> Do you guys have anything else you want to you wanna throw out about cars or anything? I'll ask no, you a couple funny. more questions in the after show. It's funny how cars have cars kind of started trending on YouTube. Like there's so many big car channels on YouTube right now. Uh, like obviously my buddy Vice Grip Garage, and uh, you know there's a lot of there's a lot of channels. Actually, that's going to be my recommendation, and I'll say it now while I'm on the topic. Dave, you should really look at uh, Derek Bieri Vice Grip Garage. He does a video where he recovers his dad's old car, and it, it's I swear it's a tearjerker. He finds the car that his dad restored when he was a kid. He finds it like it's been gone out of his life for 20 years. He threw like a series of like, he finds that car. I think it's like a, an old, uh, I think it was a Ford, like a, like a 1955 Ford Mercury or something. It's black and white. And he finds that car and buys it and drives it home. And uh, it's definitely a tearjerker. So it's, it's from a video from about four or five months ago. Uh, if I find it, I'll, I will find it and send it to you guys. But that's my recommendation. And I think you should watch it. I think you'll, you'll, you'll probably cry your eyes out. It's very, it's good. <laughs> it's great. Cool. Uh, well, before David recommends his, I'm going to thank our Patreon supporters who are today supporting uh, the Red Cross. We're going to take all the money that we get from them uh, for this episode and donate it directly to the Red Cross for Hurricane Ida. So big thanks to Odin Leather Goods, Corey from Make Shape Create, Rich at Low End Designs, Blondie Hacks, Fun Kiss Artistic Creations, you can make this too. Chad from Mancrafting, Works by Solo, Albers Woodworks, and Corey Ward. But there's a big list of other people like, like, I'm trying to think who I said last time, Adam's Lab. I don't think I said Adam's Lab. But there's a bunch of other people like Adam and his lab uh, <laughs> that also support us. And we are grateful for every single one of them. If you want to join that group of people who get to listen to the after show where David has more car questions, Go to patreon.com slash making it. Help us out. You know, dollar episode. That'd be cool. Um, we'd appreciate it. David, what do you have to recommend? Um, nothing you haven't heard of, but you should maybe revisit it is the TEDx channel. I've just been, I watched one TEDx video because I just needed something to play in the background. And then I got hooked. And I just, you you know, the how the algorithm wants to just shove that channel down your face once you once you watch your first video. So I've been just consuming all these uh, creativity videos and artist videos, and um, they are some of them are really inspiring. So just TEDx. 
Jimmy and I have done TEDx talks. You did a TEDx talk too, didn't you? I did not. David? Nope. Oh, I thought you did. Oh, I'm thinking of the Maker Fair thing. Never mind. Um, I don't have one. Again. There's a, is there a channel called, is it called <laughs> New Mind? Is that I the don't channel know. I've been watching? It's like a, a guy who does like invent, and, let me see if that's the name of it. Actually, I do have one. Let me, let me go back. All right, so. Yep. My friend Matt way, Whitman. Look up New Mind. That's a good. That's my channel. New Mind. It's New a Mind. YouTube channel. Okay. Yeah. It's okay. like a. It's like a deep thinking channel where it like goes into the history of inventions. That's it. I'm done. Sorry. Oh, cool. Um, so my friend Matt Whitman uh, does several podcasts. He does one with Destin uh, called No Ins- No <laughs> No Dumb Questions. No Instructions is the one that I'm on. It's called <laughs> No Dumb Questions, uh, and it's an excellent show. He does one called the 10 Minute Bible Hour Podcast, which is also ec- excellent for different reasons. And he has a new one called Ironwood Rhino. Now, I, have I talked about this yet? I don't think no. I have. Okay. So, Ironwood Rhino is, you just have to listen to some of them. But the whole idea is that we're used to things. We know how the world works in certain ways and just the way things are. We have an understanding. And then occasionally there are experiences that kind of break out of your understanding of how things are and not everybody can explain them. So he has people come on and tell these stories about some event that they don't really understand and they can't explain. And then they just talk about it and they don't necessarily try to solve it or explain it away. They just talk about how they know what is real and what is not. And, um, you know, and they're like, he starts out the first episode talking about an experience of, where he woke up in the middle of the night and was like, could not move and saw this big shadowy figure coming down the hallway at him and was trying to figure out what was happening. And then through telling that story, got feedback from other people that they had a similar experience. And then it's actually like a physical condition and got a big explanation to it. And it was really cool that he got some clarity on this thing that he just could not wrap his mind around. And so it's a lot of that type of stuff. Not all of it gets explained. But it's a really fun show, and Matt is a super thoughtful, uh, interesting person, and very generous and kind with people's stories and stuff. So I, it's it's worth a listen. It's good stuff. Say the uh, name one more time. It's called Ironwood Rhino. Ironwood Rhino. And that is because, I'll just go ahead and spoil this, it's in the very, very first episode. Um he was on a trip somewhere, I believe in Africa, and this guy wanted to give him a souvenir. And so he went and bought this little rhino statue made out of ironwood and gave oh, it to Matt. Cool. And he thought that was really nice. And then he got home and realized that he didn't it didn't match like his house or his stuff. And it was a thing that was unique, and he didn't want to get rid of it because it meant something to him, but it didn't match what he already had around him and didn't, you know, in his home and his life and stuff like that. So that kind of gives you the idea of what the, the show is about through that, but it's a good show. He's only a few episodes in, but he also, one thing I really like about it is he'll do a, uh, an episode, a conversation with somebody. And then in the end of that episode, we'll follow up on feedback about previous episodes. So it's not like they're, when they're done, they're done. As you listen through them, you start to hear, well, so-and-so had this idea on Reddit about episode, whatever, you know, and they start mm-hmm. passing around ideas and people are trying to help figure out things pretty cool so go check that out all right you guys got anything else mm-hmm. jimmy it means no. <laughs> i think that means no yeah jimmy mm-hmm. enjoy your trip 
I, okay. I assume we probably won't record next week because you'll be gone. Uh, I'll, I'll check in with you because if I'm sitting in a hotel room and I could do it, I will. I'm going to okay. bring some stuff with me. I'm going to have all my equipment with me. So we'll keep in touch. Okay. Well, maybe we will. Maybe we won't. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, catch you next time. Catch you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh.